0: Mr. If Speaker, not, Mr. Speaker, we'll put the chair, we'll put Mr. In Speaker, Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America.
1: Those in favor say aye.
0: Mike Johnson has set up a showdown with the Senate. Hello, and welcome back to Control, a podcast where we look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller,
1: and I'm your other host, Brendan Buck.
0: We have a packed episode for you today. Um, if you've been following Congress, it's been uh, a dysfunctional couple of days last week was um, you know, some of the 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 most difficult to watch times in the House of Representatives. and that's saying a lot considering uh, the McCarthy drama.
1: This is difficult to watch. This is the fun stuff. This is good stuff. Fun for Uh, who? (laughs) Me? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So since our last episode, lots happened. The House failed to uh, impeach Secretary Mayorkas. It failed to pass a package to Israel. Um, I guess we're going to try one of those again, but maybe not the other. Um, Over in the Senate, they are moving along um, on foreign aid, dumping the immigration part of the supplemental package. Um, So that seems to be moving along. But now Speaker Johnson, um, we are recording late Monday, uh, has come out and said that he will not bring up the Senate uh, Ukraine-Israel package because it is lacking in uh, border security. Um, as though we haven't just banged our head against the wall on that for, for months. So, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, all those dynamics, what now could potentially happen in the house. If the Senate does, as we expect, send that over to them, um, and look a little bit into some of the dynamics that, that got us to this point, uh, with Speaker Johnson, also with Mitch McConnell, a uh, very different feel, uh, in the Senate right now than it, than it used to be, um. Uh, also have some notable retirements uh, in the last week. And of course, we're going to, uh, as Annalise likes to remind us, uh, talk a little bit about appropriations.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're two weeks away from the first government funding deadline. Um, Johnson's unable to pass messaging bills. Like, you know, I know this is a different, um, we're gonna be looking at like a different collection of folks in the House to pass some of these appropriation bills, but it's just worth noting, uh, the house is out next week. Like, when is this going to get done? Um, concerning.
1: It might happen. We'll we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, but yes, we are as always on government shutdown. Or maybe it's just CR watch. Maybe we're just going to keep doing CRs for the full fiscal year. I don't know. Um, but yeah, let's before we uh, jump ahead, let's take a quick second to to look back at the week that was um, last week. Look, I, I have seen votes fail before. I've seen somewhat consequential votes fail. I don't know that I've ever seen two headline bills fail in consecutive votes, uh, which is what the House was able to pull off. Um, First, uh, Republicans coming up a vote shy on Mayorkas. Um, I guess they're going to potentially try that again with Steve Scalise coming back. Um, Obviously, great news that he is back for his health. Um, but I think the, the sort of black eye on the House is is there with that one. I mean, we, we all know that the Senate is not going to go, um, they're not going to do anything with this, and the fact that they stubbed their toe on something that they have been rallying against, uh, or rallying for, I guess, for for this entire Congress, basically, um, was remarkable, and I yeah, just... Yeah, I mean, they
0: seemed pretty confident that they had the votes for that, and then what they miscounted with Al Green in the hospital. I mean, you know, not not to not to defend them on this count. I think you know you. You don't bring something up unless you're 100 percent sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, they knew the three guys who were gonna vote against it, um, and then that's so that's that's somewhat risky to to rely on the other side's uh, absence vote tally. Yeah. Um. So I mean, there was. <laughs> Is is no one talking to Steve Scalise? Did we not know that he was coming back literally the next week? Like, why, why, why make the
0: risky move of you know potentially being losing this vote when you when you need that one other person?
1: It's just baffling. Like, it's not like uh, I mean, literally any member of the conference you should be able to have an understanding of what they're doing, where they are, really at all times. Um, But your majority leader. Um, were you not, I mean, maybe he's changing his plans to come back because of this. I, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like it's a medical situation. Maybe, maybe he wasn't medically cleared until afterwards. I don't know. But you know, d- did you not know that there was the chance that you would be able to have an extra vote the following week? I, I, well,
0: I, there were conversations at the time that he was going to be back the following day. There, was, there turn- was
1: conversations after the vote that he was going to come back mm-hmm. the next day and do it. But all the more reason, like if it was the next day, then why didn't you wait the next day? Right. Um, uh, so I, it, it just seems to be a bit of a, a breakdown in um, communication among the leadership team um, is something that we've talked a fair bit about previously. But honestly, my biggest uh, question mark for this whole thing is how they ended up letting Mike Johnson stand in the ga- in the chair, holding the gavel and announce that the bill failed. Like I, I, remarkable. I didn't, I didn't watch the vote live. I just saw on Twitter that it was going on, that it had failed, and then someone put up the clip that it was Johnson. And I was like, "Oh, so the way this works, like,
0: yeah, how would this, you normally handle this?" Yeah, this.
1: I mean, as everybody who probably listens to this podcast knows, the Speaker of the House does not stand in the chair and preside over every vote. He, he very rarely does he or she. Um, you typically only put the Speaker up there when you want to have you know a big win, good news, some, some yeah, some big messaging bill. You know, we would have Paul Ryan in the chair when we passed tax reform. You know, Nancy Pelosi did it a lot because she just, you know, I think she liked to be up there. Um, but when you saw that the bill was going to fail, put somebody else up there. Just have somebody else take the gavel and announce that it failed. I just, I, I don't blame anybody other than really like the floor staff for that. Like they should be on top of that and understand how this works and that and, uh, like, have the political sense to, to not put to your put guy in, in, else. That, in that position. I mean, small thing, but it just kind of speaks to, you know, we're, we're learning here.
0: Yeah, um, not a great visual.
1: Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I mean, the more substantively, probably the failure of the, the Israel bill speaks to um, the, the actual policy that we may be working on this week as we get into the Ukraine-Israel thing. But also... Um, really just demonstrates the the limits of using the suspension um, vehicle for bringing up bills to the floor so rather they brought this up uh on suspension needing a two-thirds vote and that's why it failed it had a clear majority of votes but they couldn't bring it up in the normal process because once again the speakers lost control of his own committee the rules committee Um and you've got folks willing to take down any bills that they just don't like uh at some point that and was gonna become problematic and and it did.
0: Yeah, this one really baffled me. Um so I was talking to a few House chiefs who's who's were who were kind of thinking that this was something that Johnson and his team, you know, while they weren't telegraphing this, were under the impression or expected it to fail. Um, you know, Jeffries was whipping against this, they knew they were gonna lose Republican votes. Um, you know, right after the big Mallorcas failure uh, to impeach, they decide to move on to this Israel bill. And if the expectation is that it's not going to be successful, I mean, I don't know, do you pull the bill? Like what options are available to you at that point? I also don't really understand the messaging exercise of having this f- bill fail. And then, you know, I don't know, are you trying to get Dems on the record opposing this? I think they're already on the record in some cases. Like, I, I guess I just like, I don't, I don't know. It failed strategy, flawed strategy. What is the strategy? I don't know. We're
1: we're, we're looking for answers. We've got a lot of questions. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's nice spin that they're doing after the fact that this was an attempt to just get Democrats on the record uh, opposing it, which I guess they you know made pretty clear they were going to do. Um, there's another way to get them on the record opposing it. Um, you could also pass the bill at the same time, which I think they would have, uh, gladly done if they were able to bring up a bill under a rule and just have it pass under a simple majority. Um, you know, another thing you're allowed to do in the majority is talk to the minority. Um, it, you know, it seemed like, uh, Jeffries came out pretty late and started whipping against it. And so maybe they were surprised by that, but you could also have a conversation with Jeffries, and Clark and say, how are you guys feeling on this? You know, what do you think that you're going to put up? They may not tell you if this is like considered an aggressive move. Um, but they should have had pretty clear sense that this was not going to pass. And if that, if that was, you know, purely the expectation, um, I don't know that they really set the stage for that very well. Cause all the headlines were is that the house dropped the ball two votes in a row. Um, and, some of it they could potentially put back together. and uh, There was talk about bringing Israel back up under a rule this week, but I don't think they're going to be able to do that, which just kind of proves like this was the only reason they did it that way is because they couldn't do it the normal way.
0: Yeah, I think they lost the narrative. Uh, I don't know. The, I, I don't know if I buy this whole they, they knew it was going to fail and they were sort of planning that all along, but maybe, maybe they were. Um, I don't know. Mike Johnson to me is sort of starting to feel like that substitute teacher that you had in grade school, you know, where you're like not really afraid of them. You don't really want to do the homework. You're just kind of phoning it in because you know, your like real teacher is going to be back tomorrow. I don't know. He feels like he's kind of lost his leverage. Yeah.
1: I mean, the thing is the move in the Israel bill alone was not a bad bad idea. Like, you saw what the Senate was doing. Try to get ahead of them and say, "No, we're just doing these things separately." But he just couldn't execute it. His team wouldn't go along with him, and so he couldn't. He couldn't do it. Um, I, 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 I don't buy that this was an attempt to get them on the record um, because it was clearly designed to try to outmaneuver the Senate. But when you when you have to rely on Democrats to pass. Things it's hard to outmaneuver the Democrats, so um, that that it's going to limit their ability to um, push back. Now, you know, with the Senate potentially sending them um, uh, a Ukraine and Israel package together. So, yeah, no, it's again, it's not 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 the bad play call, but if your guys aren't going to follow you, that's going to be a problem.
0: Yeah, there's some interesting reporting about Speaker Johnson's media style. I mean, obviously McCarthy was used the hallway walks and the media to his advantage to, um, you know, get his message out and to control the narrative and to, you know, early on, if he knew something was going to, you know, go down a certain way, he would try to kind of pre-bake it with the press. Um, and, and I think he is probably one of the only speakers in, in my memory that was, you know, super effective at doing that. Um But I think we're seeing, you know, Johnson is really kind of the opposite of that from what this reporting is telling us. Uh, I think it was a New York Times article, but sort of just saying that he's kind of putting his phone to his ear, walking around. I mean, there's all kinds of tricks in the book that, you know, members and lawmakers and, uh, you know people listening to this podcast, I'm sure, have employed to avoid unwanted press questions as they wander the hallway of the Capitol. Clearly, he's kind of avoiding some of these questions that he may not want to answer in the hallways. Yeah,
1: look, I I think one of the things that uh, an aspiring, maybe accidental speaker does not appreciate is how much the job is setting the message for the entire conference, if not the entire party at times. Um, And that's a big responsibility. I mean, that's that's not an easy thing to do. I, I think most members understand to some degree that that's part of the job but you probably don't appreciate how much um, people look to you and everything you say they um, are looking for guidance on what they're supposed to say and and, um, it's a very bright lights very quickly and so it doesn't surprise me necessarily that he's going to be a little cautious Um, I don't necessarily yeah I I don't really mind it other than um, you're now going into a big standoff with the Senate. You better be ready to communicate that.
0: Yeah, and and I want to talk about what's going on in the Senate and the showdown here, but before we get into that, I want to just touch on the uh, Rosendell endorsement because I think that was a really interesting... The, non, the
1: non-endorsement? The,
0: <laughs> the backtrack endorsement. I just think it's a really... Um, surprising uh, choice, uh, managing to sort of make everyone in the situation in the state of Montana upset uh, and in the District of Columbia at the same time. Um, for for people not following it super closely, uh, Matt Rosendale, current House member, is running for Senate in Montana. Uh, he's running against Sheehy. Most every other Republican, including President Trump, has endorsed Sheehy. Uh, Speaker Johnson, was signaling to sort of operatives and insiders that he was going to endorse Rosendale, which wouldn't be that shocking. A lot of times I think speakers endorse members of their conference. It's a little surprising to me because Rosendale hasn't necessarily been a friend to Johnson. He's been difficult to deal with, but you could also say, you know, maybe him giving an endorsement to Rosendale will help him with his tight voting margins. So it wasn't altogether shocked by that, Um, it was a little bit surprising, but what was most surprising was after he made this endorsement, um, everyone, you know, was just up in arms about the endorsement, and he was getting so much political pressure uh, that, you know, instead of sort of weathering the storm, he decided to reverse course and unendorse Rosendale, uh, Mm -hmm. just thoroughly making everyone in the situation uh, extremely unhappy.
1: Yeah, I mean, m- more context. This is a state that Republicans have to win running against John Tester. Um, and Matt Rosendale has already run for the Senate and lost. Uh,
0: he's and, a sure loser.
1: Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he's just not a great candidate. Um, so that's another bit of context. But also, uh, it's just meddling in the Senate. I mean, the Senate, um, certainly more than the House, takes pretty seriously who they're picking in um, primaries, and if you try to screw with that, Mitch McConnell is not going to care for that very much, nor are all the other people who are counting on on winning that race. This just, to me, is another one of those examples of Johnson sort of learning on the fly, and I'm being probably pretty tough on him today. And I I am rooting for him to succeed, trust me. I want him to do well, Um, but this is another example of him not knowing what he doesn't know, um, not realizing that this was probably my guess, not realizing, um, how much of a no, no it is, is to meddle in Senate primaries as a house guy. Um, you know, it, it'd be one thing if this was, a um, you know, a, a candidate who anybody thought might win, um, uh, or, or could do well in the general, but throwing your toxic house member into the Senate's carefully laid plans, Um, not going to go over well. He learned that the hard way. And
0: and I also don't think any endorsements matter. I mean, with the exception of president Trump, maybe, but like no one's endorsements matter. So why do this for, for what?
1: I totally agree with that. Um, But all right. um, Enough about the house as much as it pains me to say, we'll come back to the house. Let's take a quick break. And then we will talk about what's happening in the Senate.
0: Control is a seven letter word, And this podcast is a production of Seven Letter. Seven Letter is a leading strategic communications and bipartisan public affairs agency. Our work is powered by senior practitioners who develop and execute innovative communication solutions to take on complex challenges. Learn more at sevenletter.com. Now back to the program. All right, well, let's move it over to the Senate. Uh, so Sunday night, the Senate cleared a procedural vote on the $95 billion package to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. That vote was 67 to 27, uh, which is a pretty strong signal that the uh, legislation will pass the Senate. There's some roadblocks. Rand Paul is going to continue to try to run out the clock on this, but I think like Wednesday at some point is when, um, if if he continues to... To try and block this is kind of the latest that they'll that they'll pass it, but it's seeming like it's going to pass. Now, what happens after it passes the Senate? I think is uh, a whole other story.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think that's as we're going into this Monday night. Uh, this is posting Tuesday. I think the, that is the really the story is what does Johnson do? I mean, we we talked about this coming uh, it's coming his way, um, and as much as he wants to say. He's opposing this uh, package because it doesn't do something on the border, which we just proved can't be done effectively um, with, with this uh, current Congress. Um, but I don't think it's anything to do with the border. I think it is all about trying not to bring up something to do with Ukraine. It's got Israel and it's got Ukraine, but there are numerous members of his House Republican Conference who have made very clear that there will be big trouble for the speaker if he brings up anything funding Ukraine. Uh, And it's I think we're gonna learn a lot about, maybe we are learning a lot about what kind of speaker Johnson is gonna be, where I don't have any doubt that there is the sufficient number of votes in the House to pass what the Senate is doing right now. It's just going to require pissing off the people who tend to go after speakers. And this is super important, and he's going to have to fa- face a very difficult question. Is he just going to bottle this up and ignore it?'ve um, He's shown that he can't really maneuver. So his other option at this point is just to to ignore it and potentially allow um, you know Russia to run right over Ukraine, you know basically do nothing on Israel to protect his own standing in the conference.
0: Yeah, I was going to say his other option is to say, you know what, this is something that we're going to pass, and I don't know what my chances of being speaker are uh, next year after this election, but what is my legacy going to be? This is what I want to do? Or, I mean, I think he he has some options. I think one of the other questions is like, how are they going to bring this up?
1: Yeah, Uh, and I think if they do come after him, Democrats are not going to do what they did I can say confidently Democrats are not going to do what they did to McCarthy uh, and and vote him out. I think if Johnson is at risk of losing his job for doing quote unquote the right thing and passing a bipartisan bill, um, I got to imagine there's going to be enough votes to save him. That doesn't mean you're really in a great long-term place to be the speaker of the house that relied on the minority to keep your job. Um, I'm, I'll just say right now, I'm pretty skeptical he's he's going to do that, skeptical that he's going to put himself in that position. Um, it feels like he's just maybe going to ignore this. Um, and then we've got to see if members who uh, are really passionate about this and think this is really important, find other creative ways to bring something up. So um, if I can get into it a little bit, I mean, we've talked previously about discharge petitions where any... Um, Uh, Any 218 members can basically sign a petition that brings a bill up for a vote. Okay, remind
0: us how many days that takes, though.
1: So there are different calendars and timelines that you have to go through. Bills need to be sitting out and need to be in committee for a while. And that's where this potentially gets interesting. Um, Johnson does not have to refer a Senate-passed bill to committee. He could just hold it at his desk, uh, which would potentially get in the way of the traditional discharge petition method, where you would try to basically unlodge it from, dislodge it from a, a committee that is burying it. Um, I think what they would end up likely doing is using that shell bill that Democrats introduced for um, the debt limit. If you recall, they introduced a bill that had referral to every single committee to maintain maximum flexibility of what that could be. They, of course, never had to use that because McCarthy and Biden did the debt limit deal. Um, But I think what they would ultimately have to do is basically just recreate what the Senate did, put that same language in that discharge bill, um, and bring that up. Um, I will do my homework for for next week when this becomes a live issue. I, I don't know that they need to necessarily let all of the clocks run anymore i think they've done a lot of that work already so we'll we'll figure out the the time frame but there is another the discharge is a way to do it the problem potentially with discharge however um is i don't know that you can count on every democrat to sign the discharge petition with the debt limit they were talking about let's have all 200 and whatever it is 12 uh 13 democrats sign it we just need a small handful of brave republicans to not want us to default you know i don't think the squad is signing a discharge petition that's going to send money to israel i just don't see that happening so i don't know what that number looks like but you're probably gonna need a lot more republicans to do something they are almost always unwilling to do which is sign a discharge petition with the minority
0: it does feel like more Republicans would be willing in this case than you, a debt limit for, would, cer- for certain.
1: You would have to kind of make it out to be a, this is not a Democratic play. This is not Dems trying to jam
0: This is a national majority. security. This
1: is, we are, yeah, we are coming together as a big group to work together to pass this. I don't know if like that West Wing style uh, politics exists, but I, th- I think that's the only way it would really work.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm. I guess I'm pessimistic about that as a strategy. Um, but I, I'm, I guess I don't really see any other way. Um, I, I don't know what else.
1: There's one other way. Um, What's the
0: other way? Uh,
1: it's a another sort of guerrilla warfare tactic that the minority could use. Um, uh, it's called defeating the previous question when a I think it needs to be somewhat germane bill comes up. Um, and you want to end debate um, and move on to uh, rule passage usually Um, someone has to call the previous question and you have a vote on whether basically you want to end debate and move on if that vote fails um, someone is allowed to offer an amendment to what is being debated and that is an opportunity where they could potentially, you would, you would basically, the chair would recognize somebody who defeated the motion. And at that point they could offer something instead. So that rarely happens. Um, you know, it's, it, it, I, I don't know the last time it happened, but it is a procedural mechanism that we should probably get smarter on that they, they could use to basically hijack the floor and bring up what they want.
0: And when you say they, do you envi- who do you envision doing I, this?
1: It would be it would need again need to be a two hundred eighteen members. You know, like the whole thing in the house. Two hundred eighteen like members can do two hundred eighteen members can do anything they want in the house. Doesn't matter. Yeah, L- but literally anybody literally can
0: bring it up. It doesn't have to be like any, well, well, any member. Well, what would effectively
1: floor. happen is this same sort of coalition would say, whenever they're bringing up the bill for I don't know the next appropriations, they're going to defeat the previous question on the rule and um, a bipartisan group of 218 members would vote against it they would be allowed to make an amendment um, and then stick together again passing that amendment Um, so it, it just basically comes down to the principle that if you have 218 motivated members you can do anything the question will become is there a bipartisan coalition willing to take away control of the floor from Johnson? I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying those are some things that people could, if they're looking for ways to do this, they could, they could do it.
0: That's interesting. Um, well, I want to talk a little bit about Mitch McConnell. Um, I know it feels, things feel a little bit different, uh, in the Senate and I know, um, you know as, as long as I was in the Senate and and my memory, it's always been uh, Mitch McConnell and it will always be Mitch McConnell, but it does feel like things are sort of shifting with this latest uh, this latest latest package of foreign aid
1: yeah um, I mean a lot of people asking you did you know did McConnell botch the immigration thing and I guess i don't I don't see it that way um, I don't think McConnell really cared about the border I think McConnell cared about. Ukraine, and he was just pursuing that border stuff as a way to get Ukraine. And now that that's not going to happen, I don't think he really cares. Um, I mean, does he think that there should be border reform? And does he think Lankford negotiated a good compromise? Sure. But that wasn't really his motivation in the first place. Um, what is potentially concerning uh, for McConnell, it's not that he misread his conference there. Um, maybe he did, but I, I don't think he really cared again. Um, it's just how open the hostility towards him is in a way that never really existed before. I mean, uh, Rick Scott ran against them for leader and there was a few, you know, cranky senators, you know, questioning whether he should be leader again, this Congress, but it never really amounted to much. Um, but you know, I, I I gotta say, it feels like a lot of these folks basically are looking at him as a lame duck um, and just talking about him in a different way, treating him in a different way. McConnell is shown he doesn't really give a damn and he's still kind of pursuing what he wants to pursue and is leaning into the Ukraine thing. And this is something I've always admired about him is he doesn't give a damn um, what people think about him. Um, And uh, we may still, you know, may ultimately win the, the policy that he wanted. Um, but it does feel that uh, each time we do one of these difficult things, it's a little harder for him to have that firm grasp that you were talking about over the conference, and we'll just have to to keep an eye on that and see if um, that sort of lame duck notion starts weighing him down more.
0: Yeah, I think something to remember is that McConnell is, you know, the fundraising uh, arm, and the majority excuse me minority leader of the senate and and as as part of that responsibility it's his role to ensure that uh, you know, Republicans win back the Senate. And so our candidates are well funded and, and a, in a positive position to come into the Senate. Uh, and that is one of his, you know, huge, uh, huge jobs. And that's something that he's focused on. So I say that to say I, I wouldn't expect him to be talking right now or giving any kind of signals uh, other than to strengthen that he, you know, is. Um, going to stick around in the Senate. He's not going to be talking about what he's going to be doing, whether he's going to be retiring. I mean, none of that conversation is going to be um, public uh, in any way until uh, at least, you know, well after the election. But I think it's um, I think it's interesting to watch what the Johns are doing, as Brendan says, uh, John Barrasso, John Thune, and John Cornyn, um, who are, you know, sort of the the next folks in line potentially. Um, I think there's always a dark horse chance of like a Tom Cotton or Rubio to succeed McConnell. but you know you're seeing John Barrasso endorse people like Kerry Lake, uh, like Bernie Marino in Ohio, Kerry uh, Lake in Arizona. I mean these are people that I think are a little fringy for someone like John Barrasso to be endorsing at this point, but he's getting out there in front uh, you know potentially to build goodwill with potential new senators coming in. Uh, after November, uh, you're seeing John Thune being much more engaged in donors and uh, fun and fundraising world. You're seeing John Cornyn kind of ramp up his uh, longtime connections. Uh, he's you know just been a staple and has uh, a lot of you know really uh, longstanding donor and and fundraising connections that he's you know tapping into. I think I think all three of them have like very different paths to uh, you know move into that role potentially, uh, but. Um, you know, they're all sort of trying to maneuver a little bit behind the scenes. Uh, and again, you're not going to see McConnell saying any of this stuff, uh, out loud.
1: Yeah. Um, the same pressure that's being put on McConnell right now also just feels very much like trying to shape who the next leader is. And I'm not really sure which of these guys really makes sense to the sort of MAGA crowd in the, in the Senate. Um, Carl Holst of the New York Times had a, a great piece in the last week about the Senate really feeling much more like the House with these more conservative folks just needling leadership all the time. Um, and I, maybe we're not quite there yet because I don't think any of those Johns really represent the the MAGA crowd per se. Um, but it will be a difficult I, – I think what we need to appreciate is that whoever the next leader is is going to have much more difficult time wrangling – his or her members than McConnell did. It's just a different world now. Um, I will also say those three guys uh, dodged a bullet on the border stuff when that all fell apart. I was very interested to see how they were all going to vote on that. Um, Obviously, the conference kind of bailed on it, and so they were all, you know, had a quote-unquote They were all reading it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I was very curious to see if any of them were going to stick with Lankford, you know, um, stand up for that that deal and potentially pay the price when they're trying to run for leader later. But they were able to avoid that.
0: Yeah, and then back over to the house for a little while. There were just a couple of sort of notable retirements: um, E. N. C. Chairwoman Kathy McMorris Rogers and Congressman Mike Gallagher. Um, I mean, we've we've talked about retirements. we talked about how there's a lot of members who are just feeling like this is not a functional place. This is not where they want to be. Um, I think. McMorris Rogers had two more years to serve as chairwoman if she so desired. So I was, I was surprised by that one. Um, these are not backbenchers, you know, these are not like older, uh, you know, relatively speaking for Congress, you know, these are, these are people who, you know, have a long career ahead of them if they, if they wish. And they're just sort of desiring to like take their talents elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Um, definitely surprised a bit by both. Um, Maybe less so for me personally with CMR. Um, Just, I don't know, doesn't feel like a conference where she probably feels very at home. Um, Not a fun place to work. Um, So maybe she's like, maybe there's a chance that we're not in the majority next year. Do I want to be in the minority for two more years? I I don't know. Uh, Gallagher to me was, I don't know, surprising, but more just like, wow, because... That's a guy. He's technically chairing a committee. It's a kind of a made-up committee about China, but it's a real committee. Um, and uh, he, he is the ultimate rising star. You know, young, dynamic. You know, congressman straight out of a movie script, kind of a thing. Um, and basically, just said, nope, not going to do it. He, of course, voted against the Mayorkas impeachment. Probably should have been our warning sign that something was up. Um, so good for him um, for showing a little principle on the way out the door. Um, but definitely speaks to the fact that the House is not a place for serious policy-minded people. It's much more for for entertainers, Um, and so I think the House is going to be a a worse place uh, for that.
0: Yeah, and we'll find out, I guess, what the ultimate um, result of the special election in New York is this week, too, so we'll see if things are even tighter. Yeah, it's Tuesday.
1: Voters are voting uh the successor to our friend George Santos. Watch very closely, see if he shows up to any election night parties. Um we will not forget you, Cong- former Congressman. I will uh, forget
0: you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um all right well I I mean I feel like we have to kind of bring back shutdown watch, CR watch, whatever we're calling it. Um I mean, we talked about this, but like the house is out next week. Presumably they're going to try to re-impeach Mayorkas this week. Um, I think there's a few other things that they have, uh, you know, potentially to put on the schedule. I don't know if they'll get through them, but I'm not seeing anything about appropriations. So they're gone next week. They come back on the 28th. That gives them three days before the March 1st uh, government funding first deadline. I mean, I don't know. Brendan, you've been a little bit more optimistic on these things than I have.
1: Have I? Oh, I missed that. I think so. Um, no, I'm, I am personally shocked that they have not done more work and aren't prepared to pass appropriations well ahead of time, uh, well ahead of the deadline. I was told that they were <laughs> going to do individual appropriations bills now that they had this uh, top line agreement. Um, no. Yeah. So <laughs> there I mean, they'll those three days are enough to pass a minibus for the first deadline. For everybody's background, remember they split up the deadlines. There's a handful of the smaller, easier bills that expire on March 1st, and then the bigger ones, DOD, Labor H, um, on March 8th. So, you know, yeah, they could come back in session in two weeks and, you know, drop their bill and pass it. I don't think the clock is a problem if they are able to get that done. Uh, The interesting thing, though, is again going back on this idea that they were going to do individual bills um but also here we are once again just dropping a bill at the last minute and what the freedom caucus and those folks say about that kind of thing i mean they're not going to vote for it anyway it's at higher spending levels but does this come bringing right back to the front all of the trouble that has basically defined this congress the fights over over funding and the grief that speakers are getting um it's just its just funny how little this is being talked about, and it's going to come right back at us, uh, and it's going to collide now with funding for Ukraine and Israel, and there's going to be a huge standoff uh, with the Senate. Um, and I am very interested to see uh, if maybe Democrats decide that they want to take a stand for the Israel-Ukraine bill as it relates to funding the rest of the stuff? Do they insist on a vote on that? Um, I think when Congress comes back for that truncated three-day week at the end of February, uh, it's going to be very, very interesting.
0: Yeah, so that's a good reminder. So control will be out next week as the House is not in session, but we will be back uh, for that truncated week, the last week of February, um, to follow all of the, uh, you know, appropriations processes that are going to be playing out in regular order in the house
1: i know all of our listeners have the house calendar as the wallpaper on their phone so if you're looking at your phone and you see that the house is in session there will be an episode of of control if they're out of session like next week we will not be so you'll have to wait two more weeks but uh that is that is our schedule and we're going to stick to it
0: well thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon bye Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston, with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy and corporate engagement.
1: Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode. And don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.